Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 70, the week ending September 19th, 2017, the Pay for Shoes edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories. They include the DOJ announcement of a major criminal case which rocked the world of college athletics involving pay-for-shoe scandal in college basketball. We take a look at whether consumer product sellers need to check the SDN list before making a shipment in the context of the Cartier-OPAC settlement. We look at the Allaire FCPA and accounting fraud SEC settlement. Uh, I consider how, the, how McKinsey in South Africa reminds us that a promise to pay can be an FCPA violation. We take a look at an article by Todd Ho, a assistant professor of business ethics at Business Law and Ethics at Indiana University on rationalizations and behavioral best practices. We consider Uber and its continued problems in London. We look at the Equifax uh, data breach and uh, couple it with the news of the SEC hacking. We review some of the uh, top baseball highlights of the week. I consider the podcast series, One Month to a More Effective Compliance Program, for my October edition, which will be Business Ventures in the M&A Context, sponsored by the Volkoff Law Group. And Jay previews his weekend report. It's a fascinating episode. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a little bit longer than normal because Jay and I really got going on a roll. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA, a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 70, for the week ending September 29th, 2017, the Pay for Shoes edition. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitor, Jay Rosen, and we are back for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories. So, Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. We got a, we got a lot on our plate, so let's jump right in. So, it's uh, tangentially FCPA, but certainly bribery and corruption in may be one of the biggest stories for some time to come, Jay, which is the Department of Justice announced a major criminal case which rocked the world of college athletics. It involves uh, pay-for-shoes scandal, but it's, I think, going to be much broader than that. Four assistant coaches, uh, former uh, executive of Adidas Shoes, and multiple financial advisors, agents, and hanger-oners around um, college athletics, high school athletics, and probably some pro athletes were all ensnared in a huge undercover sting operation, not sting, excuse me, undercover operation by the Department of Justice. Uh, It generally involved the payment to high school athletes and or their families to uh, move them towards certain NCAA universities, member universities, which had contracts with shoe companies. And uh, right now they're focused on Adidas. So uh, that's probably the one we'll talk about the most. But this, um, following on the heels of uh, FIFA two years ago, uh, this this case may literally blow the lid off the NCAA, amateurism in college football, uh, alleged amateurism, pay for play and uh, may ruin a lot of careers of college 
coaches. Uh, I know we're going to talk about this at some length, but do you have just maybe a, a few initial observations from a high level? Yeah, um, I've been researching this uh, all week, and I came up with a name from the past that I'm sure you'll know. There's a gentleman named Sonny Vaccaro. My main man, Sonny. Who used to work uh, with Nike, and he left the Nike brand and then went to Adidas. And, uh, you know, this is not new behavior. It's just... It's systemic, and initially it used to start. It started on the high school level. That uh, you know, if Nike could come in and get the Manchester Central High um, little green to wear Nike shoes, that the kids in the school would wear what their kids on their high school basketball team was wearing, and then they decided to take that up to the college level, and then they took it up to the pro level. So, you know, at at some point, uh, the NCAA has always been in a very lucrative relationship with the equipment manufacturers, and for that matter, all the professional sports leagues as well. I mean, there was a point where I remember um, Reebok got the right to outfit the uh, NFL uniforms, and that was a huge opportunity to rebrand and, uh, you know, put new logos on and changes, change design. So it's, it's nothing new. I think it's always been the dark underbelly, but I think my question for you, Tom, that we could hopefully uh, unpack a bit is why wasn't this something that the NCAA could have policed itself? Why did it have to go out to the FBI and the DOJ? Uh, so that's question number one. And number two is what are the similarities and the differences that you would see in this matter compared to the FIFA matter that's been going around for the last couple of years. I see a, uh, a relationship, Jay, and it, and it may answer or provide at least some light on your first question. And that is FIFA basically had no oversight, um, no national regulatory body, no government, no one prosecutorial service uh, had oversight. And so they were able to run rampant uh, corruptly rampant for many, many years uh, until they fell afoul of other laws such as uh, money laundering, tax evasion, etc. And the N- uh, NCAA member schools, it, it's different because there's obviously some oversight, but it's once again in sports is really in a gray area of regulation. And uh, they've been uh, sports uh, grew up organically in, in uh, for the most part, uh, International Olympic Committee, FIFA, Major League Baseball, you know, the NFL, uh, although they've been helped, obviously, by certain legislation. Nevertheless, most regulators have taken a more of a hands off approach to sports, except in the area of safety. And um, so. We have the rather anomalous situation of a literally multi-billion dollar industry that is almost essentially self-regulated, and that's where the NCAA comes in. The NCAA regulates uh, its members uh, through the members' own rules, and frankly, there's probably not the political will to do this uh, at the NCAA, and much as with um, you know the Swiss or whatever regulatory body would be uh, over FIFA, there was no will to to regulate FIFA. Um, One of my wife's cousins uh, told me after the uh, FIFA scandal broke, um, it was along the lines of, you know, I really don't care whatever whatever you think about the Americans, but at least they did something. 
And uh, corruption in FIFA was well known. Corruption in NCAA is well known. You know, my, my, I remember my father and my uncles laughing about it, and they went to college in the 40s. So um, it's nothing new, but the scale of money that's involved is just astronomical. And so literally, as, as you said, you have uh, apparel companies paying high school coaches uh, <clears throat> to uh, put shoes on their high school athletes because that influences people in the local community or the high school. That's the kind of uh, dollars you're talking about that you can drive that sort of influence down at literally a, a, a 13 to 16-year-old uh, individual consumer basis. So it really speaks to the amount of money. And when you overlay that with a uh, system, and I mean, Will, William Rhodes from the formerly the sports columnist of the New York Times called it a plantation system where essentially colleges are for the cost of a scholarship are garnering millions of dollars uh, from their athletic programs, certainly in football and basketball. And then, of course, the pro sports get a feeder of apprentices who they don't have to pay for any of their training. And they get uh, in, in basketball, it's one and done. Um, in football, it's a little more um, of the apprenticeship because most 18 or 19 year olds are not physically ready to play professional football with a, uh, a, mid, a man in his mid-20s. Baseball has a two-year rule that they won't go after a, a college athlete his first two years in college, although they can, if he doesn't, if he's not drafted out of high school. So the professional sports teams have largely had this um, talent pool that's not funded by them. So, of course, they have an interest in maintaining the system. But the bottom line is the universities are making millions of dollars off these kids, and the kids are getting basically nothing. And uh, certainly in the one-and-done situation, they're getting nothing. And so um, uh, and when the, now let's overlie the socioeconomic uh, um, facts of who makes the best basketball players. It's typically not the you know, white guy, Jay Rosen, and Tom Fox of the world, even in high school, probably. Certainly in my case, it wasn't true. Um, well, so, yeah. I, I don't want to discount Millie Rosen's uh, – debut for the Valley Beth Shalone Lions where she scored six points the other day. Now was that six out of ten total? Of six out of uh, six out of um, sixteen. So and I, then I should probably note that in one junior high game I was my team's leading score with five points out of the thirteen we scored. So um, awesome. Yes uh, and that's probably the exact word my coach used. Awesome. Although he may have had a... Uh, so, yeah, I, I, the one thing I, I also want to throw in, uh, I think we're taking a little bit more time, but this is good stuff. Uh, what we're um, really going to be bouncing up against with the NCA is the definition of an amateur. And if you go all the way back to Jim Thorpe, who was just an incredible athlete in his time, he ended up having to sacrifice Olympic medals that he won because I think he took some money for playing um, some semi-professional baseball, baseball. So this NCAA thing is going to be deeper down the rabbit hole. And, uh, you know, those three sportswear companies and Rick Pitino are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, absolutely. And we have some, some more thoughts on that later, but we've got a lot to go over. So um, we ought to move on. The, uh, uh, the next thing, there was a um, OFAC enforcement action, and uh, 
it may seem surprising, although when you think about it, it's it's probably not so surprising. And it involves Cartier Jewelers. And the company got into trouble because they sold jewelry and shipped jewelry to someone on the specially designated national list, which is a huge no-no. And it it really drove home, Jay, the requirement that not only do banks and financial institutions have to know KYC, know your customer, but here we have a commercial a jeweler, a high-end jeweler, nonetheless, uh, uh, obviously, and it was a very expensive jewelry. Nevertheless, that can be a way to launder money. So um, between a financial institution, you name the bank, and a Cartier jeweler, jeweler there's a billions or at least millions of entities in between. And so um, one of the things that I've really been trying to talk about is the need for um, compliance in uh, AML compliance, money laundering compliance in commercial non-financial institutions. And I think the Cartier uh, OFAC enforcement action really really speaks to that, although you know Cartier was obviously uh, is, is a high-end product, but whether it's real estate, whether it's horses, you name the high-end consumer product, that could easily go to a high-end piece of equipment uh, that uh, a uh, SDN or person on the uh, PEP list could try to launder money through. Do you think this might affect the uh, Fox's famous leather goods company? That's a great point. I may have to speak to the owner about the... Um, AML uh, KYC program. EC FCPA settlement this week. There is um, a pharmaceutical and medical company in Massachusetts called the Lair, and they have uh, settled with the SEC to pay uh, $13 million to resolve some accounting fraud and FCPA um, offenses that uh, came mainly in India and Colombia. Uh, what's your read on this one, Tom? So here, once again, we have a company who's uh, gotten into trouble, uh, FCPA trouble, uh, FCPA trouble where there's no evidence of bribes, uh, but violations of the books and records, um, excuse me, the accounting provisions, including books and records and uh, internal controls. So we have improper rec- uh, revenue recognition at several subsidiaries, and we also have ineffective internal controls around uh, payment of uh, monies to third parties. That's it is alleged that the third parties um, made improper payments to uh, improper offers to government officials for the purposes of making sales of the company's products. So um, I guess Jay, the thing that really struck me about this case is it it, it really showed the difference in quality of the FCPA enforcement action with Telia. And when I say quality, I mean, if you think of FCPA enforcement actions in a line, and and Telia, of course, is at the top because it's the largest, but if you go down with all the numbers of fines and penalties, you see here with Allier, uh, which, of course, we have to note is Massachusetts-based, there's a spectrum of or a continuum of FCPA violations. And this one is almost a regulatory violation. In fact, it is a regulatory violation administered by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And so you see really when you have a systemic uh, corrupt series of acts at the highest level of a company, how the tr- uh, company can get in trouble and why the fine and penalty is so high down to <clears throat> something like a Lear, which is a... Um, 
I don't want to say a technical violation, but a violation of a books and records, regulatory violation, settled through an administrative order with uh, a fine and penalty at $13 million total, although that $13 million total is both um, for revenue recognition and ineffective internal controls. So I thought it was very interesting. We're going to take, I'm going to take a little more deep dive into it um, next week on a blog post. Uh, the uh, company's foreign subsidiaries in both Colombia and, and India were involved. So uh, lots of uh, interesting things to unpack from this case. And uh, kudos to the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission for uh, resolving another case. And I'd just like to throw out one other point on there. I, I think Part of the reason this got resolved was this was to avoid um, uh, a, a basic uh, successor uh, liability issue because the company was in an agreement to be purchased by Abbott, which is a huge Chicago-based uh, pharmaceutical firm. So I have a feeling that these uh, issues maybe came up during due diligence and as part of uh, preventing any successor liability, Allaire needed to clean up their acts so they could be acquired by Abbott. Uh, we should also note that in 2000, uh, March 2016, Allaire said that it had received a grand jury subpoena from the Department of Justice for documents relating to its sales practices in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. That uh, DOJ investigation apparently is still open. The uh, press release, neither the Alaris press release nor the SEC's press release referred to the DOJ investigation. So there may be other matters related to the FCPA on a criminal matter that are still being investigated by the Great. Uh, next up is your article in Compliance Week. Yes, a so promise to pay. A, prom, um, a promise to pay, Jay. This um, this is part of the ongoing sort of series of reputational uh, miasma that is going on in South Africa right now around the president, President Zuma, and a family that's very close to him, the Gupta family. There was a uh, British PR firm, Bell Pottinger, who Pottinger, who uh, basically went bankrupt when it turned out. Uh, and went into receivership when it turned out they were doing work for the uh, president and the Guptas, and that work was to stoke racial tensions. Well, now we've had KPMG and McKinsey uh, come under scrutiny, KPMG for fouling up some audits of the Gupta family, uh, which they've now resigned as the family's uh, corporate auditor. But McKinsey did a deal... Uh, with the current South African government where for what even McKinsey itself said was an exorbitant fee, they were going to advise the state-owned electric company on restructuring. They were required to utilize um, a black economic partner. Uh, it's in South Africa called, called a Black Economic Enterprise, BEE or B, uh, but a uh, lo local content partner, and they were directed by the electric company to a local content partner called Eskom. Eskom was controlled by the Gupta family. Kinsey uh, completed part of the contract with the state-owned enterprise, but the contract was terminated when uh, McKinsey did not conclude a contract with Eskom the local content provider. So the question I pose in the uh, FCPA blog article, or the question I uh, really explored is that when a um, FCPA violation obviously occurs when you make a payment to obtain something, 
Um, but it's also when you offer. So the question, uh, because McKenzie has uh, stated publicly that they did nothing to violate the FCPA, so I raised the question, was there an offer uh, made, which would also be an FCPA violation. The bottom line, Jay, for any U.S. company doing business in South Africa is you need to really go in and um, take a very hard look at your operations. South Africa is moving to become one of the most corrupt countries on earth. And President Zuma, I think, uh, has lots of allegations of corruption around him. The Gupta family, uh, numerous allegations of corruption. And if you are not uh, taking a look at your operations, I think you're uh, really missing a true high-risk area that is becoming more risky each day. The Bell Potner case uh, is is one of the, the most damaging in terms of the impact of reputational damage that uh, we've seen ever, simply because literally within weeks, the a worldwide PR firm uh, went into receivership because of their actions. I don't think that's going to befall McKinsey or KPMG. Nevertheless, uh, it could be costly if uh, for, for both of those entities. And if you're doing business in South Africa with a state-owned enterprise, you better be taking a look at your all of your controls, taking a look at your agents, seeing what they've, um, uh, the due diligence that was performed on them, looking at the contracts, really going through the full investigative process to see uh, if you've got any problems. You found a real great article um, that was in the MIT Sloan Management Review, and it's called The Trouble with Corporate Compliance Program. What was it that uh, made this article stand out to you? So this is by a fellow named Todd Haw. He's an assistant professor of business law and ethics at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. And he took a look at um, rationalizations that employees make uh, before, during, and after they engage in fraud. And he concluded that even a best practices compliance program fails to take into account behavioral best practices. And that one of the most important things that a co- he feels a company can do is to help eliminate rationalizations that would come up from time to time by employees. He, he pointed to properly, I thought, the Wells Fargo scandal, which occurred in large part because of multiple rationalizations at multiple levels. Um, certainly at the uh, senior management level, there were rationalizations, but there were rationalizations at the employee level as they were pressured to violate both company policy and the law by their uh, by their managers. He had two uh, interesting, he had several uh, prescriptions, but I found two really uh, very interesting, Jay. And the first was that companies should actually employ a behavioral specialist um, to take uh, take account of current research and theory into practice um, for an organization. The second was to use behavioral best practices to eliminate rationalizations. And he gave two examples that struck me. Uh, the first is uh, on a gifts, travel, and entertainment reimbursement form to put at the top of the form something along the lines of an attestation that the following information is true and correct. Not at the bottom, but before you do it. And research has found that if you do it beforehand, uh, you get a, a better, uh, uh, more accurate information. The second thing, which um, is not something we're really focused on in the compliance community, is that uh, incentives to do business ethically and in compliance are viewed as a part of a best practice compliance program. But Haw took a step back and said, you know, sometimes it's really just a pat on the back. 
It's an acknowledgement in a non-monetary way. It's an acknowledgement in front of your peers. It's an acknowledgement with a trophy uh, or something that's not money, that you're doing a good job. And uh, I really thought about that a lot because obviously the cost of that is much, much lower. But how many times in your corporate experience did you get a, you know, attaboy, a thank you, a pat on the back? Uh, and if, if you did... Uh, I mean, the few times that happened to me, um, you know, that really did make a difference. So uh, it was a very thought-provoking article. A lot of things that we typically don't use or don't uh, think about in the compliance space, and I hope we do start thinking about them. Yeah, one one thing that I <coughs> thought was pretty cool was uh, the way he almost described a, a just-in-time uh, message. So when you're filling out a T&E report, or you're doing an attestation, when they um, send that thing to you and ask you to sign it, suddenly you know that you should be listening to your ethics and compliance system and making the right choice. And I think in the past, people have always spoken about, you know, can you have a capability to deliver that ethics and compliance message at the moment where something might go wrong. So it's very interesting how he took the behavioral perspective and also kind of figured out to how do you wire this into an actual control to lead somebody to the right decision. Absolutely. So our friends Uber are back in the news. Imagine that. And shift uh, to lift. Shift to lift. And in one week, Jay, I, I thought we saw some very interesting, um, an interesting dichotomy. So, for uh, anyone who doesn't uh, has not, anyone who has shifted to Lyft, um, but uh, uh, Uber lost its license to uh, drive or provide uh, cars in London. And over the weekend, they went on a full bore attack. They attacked the mayor of London. They attacked the cabbies in London. They attacked the uh, regulatory system in London. They attacked the government uh, for uh, basically saying that you're going to put numerous Londoners out of business. But it was a full-bore attack, and it, frankly, it's what you expect from Uber. Yet on, um, I think it was Wednesday of this week, the um, maybe even Tuesday, the new CEO of Uber took a completely different tack. And it's the tact I hoped that they had would have taken to start with, but at least he took it, which was to apologize. And he apologized for the mistakes that Uber had made. What the city of London basically had said is, it's not the individual offenses that has caused you to lose your license. It's that you're not fit and proper. And if fit and proper means you run a uh, business that doesn't violate the law, let alone eth- ethically, uh, Uber's not it. And he properly recognized that. So I thought it was a great first step. The mayor of London responded, uh, thanking him for it and encouraging negotiations. And I'm, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that the situation will be worked out. But it was simply because um, the new CEO took a new tone and a new tact. And I think it really points to what needs to, be, uh, what needs to come from a CEO when faced with this sorts of situation. Great. So um, I think now we're going to go. Um, do we have time to do a little cybersecurity or do you want to uh, we have start to do, getting to the. Uh, we have to do cybersecurity. Okay. Go for it then. So, All right. uh, so we have two articles. 
I think ahead, every, everybody knows Equifax was was breached, uh, and we had the uh, the new. <laughs> we've had one resignation of the CEO. The new CEO formally apologized and uh, made some amends in an editorial on the Wall Street Journal. But it turns out the SEC was hacked as well. So uh, Joe Mount uh, reported in Compliance Week on the SEC hack. Matt Kelly, uh, in his continuing reports on uh, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton, talked about Clayton's testimony before Congress. Um, on uh, this hack and other matters in uh, radical compliance. So uh, a paramount to unpack there. You want to talk about so, some um, I guess my, my, my first um, – yeah, just I wanted to add one thing to the cybersecurity thing. Um, you know, you and I, we, we have an institutional memory about what happened to our parents with runs on banks. Uh, do we think with all these uh, cyber hacks – that are happening that at some point this could really be uh, a systemic failure for our banking system. And, you know, I'm looking at our fellow Americans in Puerto Rico who, if they don't have cash, they're not able to pay uh, overinflated prices for their basic necessities. So how far does this uh, cyber security situation, how uh, perilous is it for our economy going forward? Well, uh, when he was FBI director, James Comey said there are two classes of businesses, those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked. So it may be the new reality. And it's how do you define right. it? So, so uh, Tom, last night, uh, the uh, Houston Astros made a visit to Fenway Park. Can you tell everyone what happened? Yes. The Astros stomped. Uh, let me repeat that. Stomped. The... Um, What's the name of the team up there? Oh, yeah, the Red Sox. Uh, 12 to 2. In the first of a three-game series, uh, Astros now have 99 wins, second most wins of all time. Earlier this week, second baseman Jose Altuve reached 200 hits, although I would note he had three last night, for the, fir- for the fourth straight season, becoming the fourth second baseman to do so in the history of Major League Baseball. Also, he clinched the AL uh, top hitter, for the third time in four years, uh, and I think an MVP award should should be uh, not far behind. Um, the, but even with the Red Sox loss, their magic number is down to one J. So I assume over the weekend they'll they'll clinch at least a playoff spot. We should note for our Cubby fans listening, the Cubs have clinched; they're back in it. So uh, maybe we'll have a really uh, just a NL NL World Series with the Astros playing the the hated Dodgers, the beloved Cubs, or maybe even the Nationals. So uh, lots of baseball, very exciting time for the baseball uh, playoffs, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see some games in um, Las Vegas. Yeah, that'd be great. So a, a quick one, you know, I'm normally known as a, a full-time Boston apologist, but I'd like to go back into the way back machine about three years ago when the Astros were not as uh, successful as they are now. And there was uh, an ethics and compliance commentator in Houston who was not as complimentary towards the organization and the team. Do you know who we might be talking about? You know, I think that person has left the field. He was he was just shamed out of uh, all future commentary. <laughs> uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the NFL. Uh, you got any rants for me? Uh, I thought uh, the NFL weekend started with a Pakistani immigrant 
linking arms with his team in London to show solidarity. The NFL week ended with Jerry Jones linking arms with his team before the national anthem. And I found um, the solidarity from the ownership class and the worker class, i.e. the players, to be an extraordinary statement that I have not seen um, in quite some time. Awesome. Well, um, what I wanted to not kind of rant, but I wanted to leave as a parting thought uh, is that uh, tonight at sundown uh, begins one of the holiest days in the Jewish uh, religious calendar, Yom Kippur. And it begins a period of uh, 24 hours self-reflection and to think about, you know, how you acted in the year be- before and how you will act in the year going forward. And part of the liturgy says that on Yom Kippur, all sins between man and God or woman and God are immediately erased and you get a clean slate. But any sins between people. So, you know, if I've got something festering between you, we have to square it ourselves. And if we don't square it ourselves, it's never going to get taken care of. And, and I choose to offer these remarks in the sense of just the hyper politicized uh environment that we have out there. And I think all of us, if we can figure out a way to have intelligent debate and to not just put an R or a D on somebody, then hopefully we will be living in a much better world. So that is my my hope for the weekend. And, and my hope is that I can make it through the fast uh, in, uh, in, in, in good shape. But my my thought would be is if we can take time to listen to each other and uh, debate and agree to disagree. And, you know, maybe this NFL thing is the start of it. There's certainly self-interest for the owners, but um, let's see if this is a a movement that we can move forward into having some dialogue that will make a difference in the coming year. So a couple of things I want to end on, Jay. Uh, The first is uh, I have, uh, today is the last day of the uh, one month or more effective compliance program dealing with innovation and compliance. This month's sponsor has been uh, Oversight Systems. And next month, I start a new program or a new one-month series, and I'm going to take a look at uh, compliance with business ventures. So this is in the mergers and acquisition context, joint ventures, distributors, channel ops partners, teaming agreements, and all other manner of business ventures. In the first week, I take a deep dive on M&A under the FCPA, and I'm really proud to announce um, the October month sponsors is the Volkoff Law Group. So uh, if you're interested in uh, how you can do better compliance in a business venture setting, uh, this will be the month for you. And do you, I know holiday weekend um, is going to be uh, uh, probably paramount on your mind, but uh, any weekend report or anything you've been uh, thinking about that you're going to talk to us about next week? Yeah, I'm uh, noodling on, uh, I got a title for this week's uh, report, which is, uh, draining the swamp and swimming with the sharks. So uh, I'm going to take a look at the uh, ethical um, atmosphere that is in this country and in Washington, D.C. Take a look at HHS Secretary um, Price's uh, proclivity for flying on uh, private jets and kind of uh, taking a look at a story from my past when I was working uh, in the studio system. So hopefully I can bring that all together and put it into some type of uh, 
cogent uh, piece for this uh, for my weekend read. So it looks like we've gone a little bit longer than normal, but we had a lot to unpack. You want to take us home? On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending a few minutes and taking a look at the week in FCPA that was for the week ending September 29th, 2007. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you listen to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly FCPA Compliance and Ethics podcast wrap-up. Also, if you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed Episode 70 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending September 29th, 2017. And I hope you will join us again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.